Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Golden Age detective fiction is having a bit of a moment. Over the last few years, there's been a resurgence of interest in crime fiction from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, with hard to obtain titles receiving new editions and new TV and film adaptations in the works. But it isn't just in the books from that period that we see this effect. Today's crime writers are turning more and more to the details and tropes of the classic whodunit. Whereas just a few short years ago, a publisher might have looked askance at a manuscript for a mystery laden with references to the Golden Age, today it's becoming positively desirable for authors to show off their knowledge of the genre's origins. It's in recognition of this fact that the Shedunit Book Club has this month taken a break from reading books published in the first half of the 20th century and is instead, in June, tackling a contemporary novel that grapples with the traditions of the Golden Age. The Book Club is the community that supports this podcast's continued existence. Paying members help the show remain independent and financially sustainable so I can keep making new episodes for everyone. Each month, club members vote on which book they would like to read and discuss together. Other perks of joining include getting access to the two bonus episodes a month that I make just for members, ad-free episodes of the main podcast, and access to the community forum where all things mysteries are discussed. There's more information at shedoneitbookclub.com join if you'd like to check it out. Anyway, this month, the club has chosen to read The Postscript Murders by Ellie Griffiths. This novel, published in the last year, is absolutely steeped in the traditions and tropes of the golden age of detective fiction, and so is perfect for considering how these ideas are being refashioned by today's writers. It follows four sleuths, one police detective and three amateurs, on their quest to discover who killed their friend Peggy, an elderly woman who loved reading murder mysteries. On the surface, it doesn't seem like anyone can have had a motive to kill a charming and inoffensive old lady, But the closer the quartet look, the more it seems like the solution to the case lies in Peggy's collection of classic crime novels. Ellie Griffiths is the pen name of Dominica de Rosa, a writer based in Brighton who is the author of two separate mystery series, the Dr. Ruth Galloway novels about a forensic archaeologist slash sleuth in present-day Norfolk, and the Brighton Mysteries series, which are set in Dominica's hometown in the 1950s. The Postscript Murders reprise a detective character, D.S. Harbinder Kaur, from her standalone novel The Stranger Diaries, which won the 2020 Edgar Award for Best Novel. I'm delighted to welcome Dominique to She Done It to tell us more about how The Postscript Murders came together and about her own love of Golden Age detective fiction. There are no major plot spoilers in this episode, by the way. And don't forget, if you'd like to join me to discuss the book at the end of the month, visit shedoneitbookclub.com slash join once you finish listening to become a member of the book club. To start with, the premise of the book all revolves around this character, Peggy, who is a murder consultant. And I'd be fascinated to know where that idea came to you from. Have you ever encountered someone with that kind of role? Well, actually, there is a real life model for Peggy, and it's my aunt Marge, 
So I've got, got an Aunt Marge. I've, I've, since I've started telling people the story, I realize so many people have an Aunt Marge. It's a, a, a Harry Potter did, didn't they? So I have an Aunt Marge, and she used to live in Norfolk, where she was a great help with the uh, Ruth books, actually, because she has a boat and she was you know, very helpful in researching those. But then she moved to the South Coast, quite near me. And something about so like Peggy, she had a lovely flat which looked out over the sea and the promenade, just a little bit along the coast from me. I live in Brighton. Something about the new house, I don't know what it was, whether it was the setting, whether the fact she could look out of the sea, maybe it was the sea air, I don't know. But it just made her kind of obsessed with murder plots. And she kept thinking of new plots. She would look out of the window and look up and down the promenade. Do you see two people meeting and think, who are they? And then she'd ring me up and she used to always ring me sort of, um, well, she still does, quite often on a Sunday. And it's like, oh, hello, love. I, I've just I've just seen a, a priest. And I was just thinking, could you kill someone with a thurible, you know, and all that. So, <laughs> so I started to think, well, what if there was somebody whose job was to think up crime plots for crime writers? Because Marjorie would always want me to put these plots in my book. And I'd sometimes say to her, Marge, why don't you write the book? And she'd say, no, no, love, I couldn't write the book, but I want you to put it in. And I did once use one of her murders in, in a Ruth book, actually, earlier on. So she's got a bit of form. And one of the reviewers, I think it was the Financial Times, said that it was the nastiest use of a stair lift they'd ever heard of. And Marge was so happy with that. She framed it. She was so happy with that review. So she wanted me to put them in my book. So I thought, what if there was? An elderly lady, very respectable, my answer, a retired maths teacher, very, very respectable. But what if her job was thinking up murders for crime writers? And then what would happen if she was murdered? I did have to, and it's not giving anything away because Peggy's murdered in the first chapter, first page, I think. And I did have to square it with Marge and she didn't mind the character getting killed off quite early. And she was fine about that, being a true mystery fan. So really, that's where the idea came from. Well, that's amazing. Because is that something that as someone who's written a lot of books now that you struggle with that part of the process. I need yet another way for someone to die before I can set this plot in motion. I suppose so, in a way, as it might sound strange from a crime writer, the plot is always kind of the hardest bit for me because I really like the characterization and, and what was fun in this book was writing about four very different characters all from their viewpoints. I really liked that bit. I, I loved location and atmosphere. And I that's where I always start as a writer is with the place and with the atmosphere of the place. So sometimes the who killed who and why is a little bit the last thing to appear. And I guess my murders aren't very gory. So I don't have a kind of lot of blood and gore in my book. So it often is a sort of puzzle, you know, who did what, when and why. So I guess that's right. I am a little bit squeamish about killing people in horrible ways. And I think apart from the stair lift, I've never done anything too horrible. I think not anyhow. So yeah, maybe that is the bit that I struggle with most. It's helpful to have some external feedback, perhaps. Yes, yes, it is. It is, really is. <laughs> When you were putting together this book, because another thing that is remarkable and sort of makes it stand out is the fact that you've got a collective detective group as opposed to, you know, in your Ruth Galloway series, you've got an amateur and a professional, let's say, working in tandem, which is quite a classic mole. But in this case, you've got a little gang of four, haven't you? Is that different? Does that feel differently when you're writing? Yes. I mean, it was it was quite a challenge because, yes, so I've got the four characters. I've got the sort of uh, Habinda, who is the Habinda Kaur, who is the official detective. She's the detective sergeant who appears in Stranger Diaries as well. So she's kind of doing the police procedural bit. So I wanted to have three characters who weren't doing that. So there's uh, Natalka, who's, who's the Ukrainian carer of, of Peggy. There's uh, Peggy's 80-year-old neighbour, Edwin. And there's Benedict, who runs the coffee shop. So I wanted to have sort of 
very different characters. And the challenge, which I did quite enjoy actually, was of course they would all notice different things and they'd see different things. And uh, Benedict's very much a crime fan and he loves sort of TV crime and reading about crime and all sorts of things. So he sees a certain thing with Edwin is, is maybe a, a slightly different generation and he sees different things, but he's also a very good sleuth and Natalka's quite dashing and takes risks. So I quite enjoyed doing all those things, but it was quite hard to remember who'd seen what and who'd remember what. And there's quite a lot about, there are quite a lot of clues in this book that are kind of literary, like sort of anagrams and wordplay and things like that. And of course, who'd noticed that and who wouldn't and things like that. So that was quite a challenge, but I did enjoy it. I have to say, really, I don't think I've ever enjoyed writing a book more well that definitely comes across and something that I really really liked about it and why I think it's going to really really appeal to fans of the podcast is that it is so literary and so referential of the genre and not just the the genre today although you do have the the period at the Aberdeen Crime Festival where they're sort of contemporary writers but it's very referential of crime fiction in the past as well so is that something that you're a fan of as well? Yes you know and and I'm so happy to have found your podcast it's going to be one of my happy places because yes I love classic crime I love golden age crime and yes one of the clues is about a golden age book which is a made up she's a made up writer Sheila Atkins. And I had so much fun making up all her titles because I love thinking up titles for books. And I have to say quite often my publishers sort of say, what a great title. No, we won't have that um, because it's like too, I don't know, too, too silly or it's a quote from Shakespeare or something. So I absolutely gave rein to all my, what I think of a fantastic crimey titles. And my editor said afterwards, I hope you've got those all out of your system now. Uh, and I probably have. Uh, so, yes, so there's a golden age writer at the centre of this. And I do really like this uh, this sort of genre of writing. I teach creative writing and I just particularly, but I do particularly like it. Also, I think it's a very sometimes quite overlooked how kind of dark some of these books are and how sort of bleak they are. And, and some of the, one of my favourite uh, golden age writers, I think she's, almost out of print now is Nancy Spain and I love her books I mean who wouldn't love a writer who has a book talking titles called Cinderella Goes to the Morgue I mean that's such a good title <laughs> uh, but you know there's a book of hers called R in the Month which is set at sort of run run down sort of seaside town in, in, in winter and it's so atmospheric and brilliant so yes that's definitely a, a, an era that I like and I did very much enjoy sort of making up a few uh, golden age plots and I suppose in The Stranger Diaries I made up a Victorian short stories. I, I, I love the Victorian era as well. A huge fan of Wilkie Collins. I, I see quite a lot of your uh, your listeners are also Wilkie Collins fans. So yeah, that, yes. So I really did enjoy that. And what do you think, someone who's writing crime fiction today, what do you like to take from that golden age period and what is sort of fresh and new, do you think? Is, are there things that you enjoy imitating? Yes. Well, I do think Golden Age can teach us quite a lot about the power of understatement and what's not said. And and there there are some, you know, it's it's very spare. I was rereading an Agatha Christie the other day and there's just pages and pages of dialogue. Uh, and you don't even know who who's saying what, though you can guess Poirot because he keeps saying, oh, mon ami, you know, so that's why she keeps doing that. So you can tell it's him. But but there's just lots of dialogue and it's very understated. But all the clues are there. And of course, it's very difficult 
in um, in a short novel like Agatha Christie, I mean that they're sort of about I don't know about sixty thousand words, and on average, I think a book now is about ninety thousand words. So with so little padding to to do such a good plot, it's very very hard, and to and to not to not cheat at all, and to really uh, keep you guessing to the last minute. I write a series of, of quite novels for for children actually for middle middle grade. It's cool. So it's like nine plus, and they're called. She's called a girl, a girl called Justice. And there are three books in the series now. And it made me think about that writing those books. Because of course, when you're writing books for children, maybe it's a little bit like a golden age novel, and that uh, clearly there's not going to be any gratuitous violence, there's not going to be any sex, there's not going to be much description of the countryside. So it's all plot. And um, and that's actually very hard to do, something that's kind of all plot. Having said there's no sort of description, I do think that a lot of those writers are very good. At you know um, that, that wonderful Neo Marsh book, Opening Night, that's set in the theatre, and the very very good at atmosphere, I think. But again, without too many words, without using too many words. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War Two. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Because place and atmosphere, as you said, is something that's very important to to your books. And you've got two very distinct landscapes in your your different series. And in this one, all of the the stuff about you know Peggy and Edwin in their block of flats looking out to sea and reflecting on old age and all that sort of thing it's very evocative and uh, where did that come from is that also from your aunt I suppose so I think it's, it's a move isn't it that maybe one takes at a certain point in life to, to maybe move from a flat into an apartment and, and uh, Edwin is quite sort of uh sort of scathing about the apartments they're called sea view house and he calls them in his head preview house and it's like a preview of death sort of thing so he's quite gloomy about it particularly but i i get the impression that sort of peggy 
saw, saw it in a different way. She saw it as, as a new opportunity. And uh, so I think it is a part of your life when, when you are thinking of, yeah, you're thinking of the next stage. This stage, it might be your last home, I guess. So I think you would look at it. And I, I suppose I did look at it a bit like that, you know, when, when Marge moved in. But also she loved it you know she really loves the uh the view and she loves seeing the sea and she loves that sort of and a seaside town is actually a very good place for a crime novel because it does a lot of the things that you need like you you really need a sort of range of people and there's usually a range of people in a seaside town people sort of wash up next to the sea and sort of stay there so you often have like very grand houses in this book there's a millionaire's row which there is in brighton you know where there are these massively grand houses but also you have quite grotty accommodation you have a big range but also if you if you send something near the sea there's always a way of escaping <laughs> you know and actually shoreham this is, is based in shoreham shoreham by sea there's even an airport which lovely little airport little 1920s airport so people can and they do in this book even get a plane so i think the ideal setting for a crime novel is somewhere like that somewhere quite evocative somewhere there's a range a social range and uh and also people with different backgrounds and histories and also a way of escaping <laughs> mm, yeah that's a really good point i suppose you've you've got two detective characters now on two different coasts of the uk i and i do yes I, I do wonder about that. It obviously, it's something, and, it, and also my, my Brighton series in the 1950s, I do seem to, a friend of mine, William Shaw, is a really good crime writer, um, writes the Alex Cupidy series. He, when he was a journalist, did an article about people who lived near the sea, and there were some studies done, I would have to ask him about, that showed that people got more eccentric the nearer they got to the sea. And you could almost see that. Say you get out of the station at Brighton Station and the sh- around Brighton Station, the sort of accountant's offices and things like that. And as you get near the sea, you get the tattoo parlours, you get the slightly stranger shops. And nearer and nearer to the sea, the slightly odder and stranger things are. So I think that might be why I'm drawn to the sea. Mm. And you're absolutely right about the sort of social mix at a seaside town because people move there for all sorts of different reasons, don't they? Yes. And uh, one thing that I um, am sort of in my head thinking about as a trend, but I don't know if it is one yet, but I feel like there's more and more crime novels um, these days that feature older characters, of which The Postscript Murders is one. And it's such a fascinating thing to do. And you don't see it perhaps quite so much in golden age stuff, with the exceptions of Miss Marple and so on. People tend to be sort of middle-aged and active when they're involved in a crime novel. But there's a whole hidden history to a life that you can reveal as you do in this book. I wondered if, if, if you had any reflections on that. Yeah, that's so true. As a matter of fact, I did think when I wrote this book, gosh, this will be really unusual, a group of old people solving a crime and older people solving a crime. And of course, it came out at exactly the same time as Richard Osman's Thursday Murder Club, which I really, really enjoyed, which of course is about a group of old people in an old people's sort of complex solving crime. So very, very similar plot, though. Actually, I think they are quite dissimilar books, but uh, it is it is something that happens all the time, isn't it? You think this is a great idea and somebody else has it. But you're so right about the golden age. I recently reread Agatha Christie's By the Pricking of My Thumbs, which is a it's a Tommy and Tuppence novel, which they're often a bit sort of ignored, aren't they? But it's very good, again, very good on atmosphere, very creepy. But it starts off in an old people's home and they keep saying things like, well, poor old soul needed to put her in an old people's home. She was 60. And you think, oh, my goodness, you know, (laughs) to us, that is young now. You know, maybe it's because I'm in my 50s. I'm thinking that. But, you know, and then there's another. Oh, well, she's 70. So it's and nowadays, 70 year olds are Joanna Lumley, aren't they? And and glamorous people going around the world and 
it really does make you think, as you say, apart from Miss Marple, who was kind of ancient throughout. Um, it, it is, but actually, by the, having said that, by the pricking in my thumbs, is Tommy and Tuppence in their later years, I guess they're in their 50s. And they do muse quite a lot on that and the fact that, you know, they'd had that exciting wartime past and what do they do now? And what does Tuppence do now as a woman? So actually, there is a little bit of, of that in the books if, if you look hard enough for it. But, but yes, I think like a lot of people, as I get older, my idea of what is old is going, gets older and older. So Peggy is 90 and, you know, she's quite a spring chicken. Another nice improvement you've you've made on the form with with this book is by making Peggy's carer a really fully realised character. I mean, there's several carer characters in the book. And I think there is perhaps a tendency to make those people invisible in fiction and in TV and so on. And you've sort of done the opposite. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad you like Natalka. My, my mum was looked after by carers in her last years and they were just such wonderful people. And, and it, again, it's, it's an interesting job because people come to it from such different places and life experiences. And they're doing it for all sorts of different reasons. Yet they are drawn to something that is hard work and, and you know, very hard work, and, but it's also caring. So that they, they are particularly interesting people, I do think. And But you're quite right about, in a way, the golden age. Um, I always think of Miss Marple often says about some poor dead maid, oh, poor silly girl. You know, and that's all she gets. That's all the epitaph she gets, you know. So, yes, you, you, you want to bring out the, the, the figures, the hidden figures who might be overlooked in that genre of fiction. Definitely. Yes, there's a terrible, terrible. I like Josephine Tay. I'm a fan of, uh, you know, Daughter of Time, huge influence on me. But there's an awful line in Brat Farrah where she says the, the, the sort of sympathetic character says, oh, can your latest idiot take a telephone message? Hey. <laughs> So, yes, there's the snobbery there that is in some of the books, I have to say, which I hope modern, you know, modern crime fiction doesn't have that, I hope. Yes, I think definitely the I've been looking into this a lot recently, the kind of the way servants are just part of literally furniture is definitely not how people write today. And that's a definite upgrade. Your characters. So, you know, I suppose in a way that this is this is, as you say, a sequel to The Stranger Diaries because Harbinder carries over are we going to meet any of the characters again in the future do you know I had thought it would be a standalone though I do think Harbinder will appear again so she as you said she appeared in Stranger Diaries and she appears again here so I feel she's got one more adventure in there at least and a few things I'd like her to do I think it would be interesting to follow her doing let's say I had thought that they I wouldn't write about them again but I've never missed characters as much as I miss Edwin and Benedict and Natalka. So I don't know. I just not. It's. I'm obviously quite bad at standalones because I keep bringing my characters back. So I wouldn't say never that they'd never appear. But my idea is that the next Harbinder book will be a whole new cast of characters, and the only one we'll know will be Harbinders. That's the idea. But you never know. I can see them teaming up to solve more crimes. And I'm also quite sort of um, taken with maybe a short story about. Peggy before mm. because you know as as we've said she is sort of central to the novel but she does die quite early on so I'd quite maybe a short story about her would be fun yes to visit her pre the events of yeah. script murders yeah well and um, you're in charge so I'd love to ask you a little bit about your um your sort of writing habits and your writing process because you're a very regular and as a fan, I can always rely on a, a new Ruth book and so on. How do you manage all of your different characters and your different series? 
Well, I usually, um, thank you. I mean, I'm quite, last couple of years I have published two books a year and, you know, that, that didn't stop in lockdown. In fact, I felt very lucky to have that to escape to, to be honest with you. Um, and I try and write every day. I'm very lucky. My, my children have grown up and uh, uh, I do a bit of teaching, but, but that's it really. So and I've got a little writing shed in my garden, which is where I'm talking to you from. Yeah, so I, 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 I try and write every day. I'm very lucky. Usually I can do so. I'm usually just me here with the cat writing away. I do usually just write one book at a time. So I wouldn't say write a Ruth book in the morning and a Brighton mystery in the afternoon. So I, I have to be sort of in, in that place, I guess, when I write it. The only exception is my children's series, A Girl Called Justice, because I sometimes write a chapter of that on Friday to cheer myself up because I just really, really enjoy writing those books. So that's like a little treat I give myself sometimes on a Friday. But but usually, so I obviously have notebooks I've written, you know, when Ruth was born, when Nelson was born, when, when, when the events of the books happened. Because, of course, now I'm writing Ruth 14, actually, at the moment, for The Locked Room. And they're 14 years of stuff, you know, to remember. Um, and I usually I'm quite good at it. Uh, but, but sometimes I can be. Or sometimes you think... Did I say that, you know, in this in this book that I'm writing at the moment, she actually goes to a school reunion and I knew I'd talked about her school friends somewhere. And it took me quite a long time to find it, but I had. So I was able to sort of, and luckily I, I put quite a, quite a sort of teasing little thing in about one of them. So I was quite pleased with myself then. So I was able to put that in. <laughs> so yes, thanks to your past self. Yes, you thank you, past self. Expand on that. Um, yes. So how, how long would you say it takes you to write? To write one of your novels it's sort of like everything isn't it really so i as i say i've been contracted to write two a year so it basically takes six months so i usually start one in in january and sort of finish in july and start the next one in in august and finish in in january so it sort of works itself up like that i'm, I'm often editing one while i'm writing another but that's okay it's just the kind of creative getting the story down that i feel i can't do two at once so uh, so that's more or less what it takes me yeah and, and it but again like everything when i wrote one a year it took me a year and if i gave myself you know at some point i will take myself off this treadmill and then it will probably take me five years who knows but at the moment it doesn't seem doesn't seem too treadmillish actually I was doing some research recently about um, what Agatha Christie did during the Second World War and looking at and uh, she wrote two books a year throughout the war. And in one case, she wrote three. And she says in her autobiography that um, she found she had so much more time once, you know, her husband was away with the armed forces and there was no social life. She was actually living in London, but there was no social life because everyone had left. So she had nothing to do apart from right and that made me think that that's a little bit like the last year perhaps it is isn't that interesting yeah and did those did those novels feature the war I'm trying to think um I think a couple of the later ones did I think the sort of ones that come out in 44 45 sort of reference it but largely not and actually the year that she wrote three one of them was Curtain which then wasn't published until the 70s but she wrote it in 41 they think and then had it put away as the last part. Yes, yeah, that's such a good book. God, that's very interesting. Yes, yes you forget really um, third girl is the 60s, isn't it? You know, she, she did sort of keep writing right at that point. I do think there are similarities. So funny enough, the, the Ruth book I'm writing at the moment, which is Ruth 14, um, it's called The Locked Room. It is set in 2020 because I couldn't really get away, get away from that because I've been writing one every year. So she is locked down 
with Nelson, mm. without Nelson in this book. And the same time, I'm, I'm thinking of the next Justice book, which will be in the Second World War, it'll be 1939, because that's where I've got to in that series. And there are sort of similarities. You know, I think of Justice going to school with her gas mask and, and school suddenly seeming sort of different and having different rules. And, and, and I am seeing similarities there, definitely, yes. It's very, yes, it's very interesting. Like, but, you know, like Agatha Christie, I think writers are very lucky because we can escape, can't we? You know, you can escape the, the, what's happening into, into your own world, really. Mm. And process it into whatever yeah. is helpful. Yes. Yes. No, I was, I was just, I was very struck by what she said about how, um, well, I just had nothing to do apart from work. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which I think is probably what many of us have found. <laughs> Well, I think that that's everything that I, I wanted to ask you. Oh, it's um, been lovely to talk to you. And just to Sam, I'm so flattered that people wanted to hear about postscript murders, and there probably will be another uh, Harbinder book at some point. But the next book from me will be the next Ruth book, which will be in February, and it's called The Locked Room. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.